and click on the Freedom Books button. Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Oh, we got a full agenda today. Yeah, I use the word agenda, but uh, really my agenda is to uh, encourage you to think for yourself. So, uh, you know, take that for what it's worth. Among the things that uh, we're going to be covering today, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that recent poll on socialism. I know you've seen this pop up in your news feeds and you've seen people go, uh, wait a minute. Really? 40% of Americans say they support socialism. In fact, I think the number may be even higher if you uh, skew down towards the millennial demographic. Anyway, is that a reason to be alarmed? I know of at least one commentator who says, hey, don't, don't get too wrapped around the axle on this. Not just yet. Also, George Washington is next in the war on history. Come on. They were tearing down statues of Confederate generals and, you know, bad talking the founding fathers for a long time. You knew the day would come when America's indispensable man, George Washington, would find himself in the crosshairs. We'll talk about how that's happening and whether it should be happening for that matter. The solution to social media suppression of speech. I love this piece. I'm going to share that with you a little bit later. It's uh, and it's written by a high school senior, which I don't know about you, but that uh, this kid makes a great deal of sense. I don't mean to be condescending by calling him a kid, but he he's uh, he's young, getting ready to graduate high school and um, obviously a thinker. That gives me hope for the future. And I hope it does you, too. Also, we will talk about why statistical differences don't necessarily add up to discrimination. And if there's time, why your bank may lock you out of your own account. I read this story, and I mean, look, I know there's a war on cash. I know that uh, there, there's some interesting stuff happening with banking. And I'm going to come right out and tell you that uh, I tend to go with a credit union just because sometimes I have a problem with banking. Now, I do have an account with Wells Fargo. Here, let me give you the number and the pin. Ha! Psych. No, it's... Uh, the only reason I continue banking with Wells Fargo is because I started 33 years ago. And actually, it was even longer than that. I think I may, I may have been there for 35 years. Nonetheless, they've treated me very well at the various branches, but uh, banking is is taking an interesting and somewhat dark turn. We'll talk about how your bank could lock you out of your own account if it decides that servicing your account isn't profitable enough for it. I mean, you know, hey, you want to store your money here. That's that's going to cost you something. They used to pay you to store your money there. Like I say, we'll bring that up here in a moment. Also, this was a, this was one we'll definitely work in today. With all the technolo- technological advances, will robots be caring for the elderly? When it comes to end-of-life care, I know a lot of people you know, face d- difficulty. They face big decisions with parents that are approaching that, uh, that stage of life. I'm in, the, I'm in that position myself. And you, know, you, you have decisions to make. Are, is this person steady enough to, to live on their own? Can they, can they handle it? Are they in danger of falling? Can they support themselves? Is... You know, how do we take care of them? It's not an easy thing, but uh, robots may actually have a role to play here in the near future. So let's start with that poll on socialism. 
Jeffrey Tucker, writing for, I believe he's writing for the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, says that poll on socialism is not as alarming as it seems. He says every poll needs a headline takeaway. And this was one heck of a thing to wake up to. Four in ten Americans embrace some form of socialism. Now, see, socialism is one of those words that uh, it's, it's a buzzword, at least in political circles. I attended my uh, county convention here a few weeks ago. Um, I'm, a, I'm a delegate. This is, this is about the extent of my participation in politics. I will try to wield whatever influence I have, you know, to, to support proper limited government and freedom, free markets, uh, private property, etc. But I noticed that there was a lot of talk, even at the county level, about socialism and the danger of socialism and why we have to support this party in order to make sure the socialists don't win. Now, something that wasn't brought up, and I'm sorry to go off on this tangent, but, uh, but I feel like I, I have to point this out. Just because it was a Republican county convention, you would think, well, then obviously it's only the Democrats in, in favor of socialism. But truth be told, in my home state of Utah, the Republicans have a lot of uh, socialist tendencies, too. They just prefer them to be Republican flavored, if that makes sense. So back to the article here. The poll comes from Gallup. It compares attitudes towards socialism today in the U.S. with a similar poll taken back in 1942. Back 77 years ago, 25 percent of Americans believed socialism would be a good thing for the country. Now, that should have fallen to zero by now, says Jeffrey Tucker. And yet this latest poll has 43% of Americans claiming that socialism would be good for the country, while 51% think it would be bad. So that anti-socialist majority is, uh, it's pretty thin. And Jeff Tucker says, when I saw this, my stomach sank. Seems like everything is getting worse. But he says, then I saw a meme online that explained that many millennials think that socialism means the view that you like using social media. It's a funny joke, maybe. But here's his point. Language is malleable and retaught in every generation. The word liberal keeps migrating to mean different things. So it's not entirely crazy that the word socialism, too, would take on a completely different meaning, too. But he says we don't have to speculate about this. Once you drill down into the poll, you find out something very different from what the above findings suggest. It turns out the same people who say they like socialism do not like government. Yeah, they're against government control. Even more encouragingly, he says, these same people say that the free market is a much better solution to our problems than government. Now, these are extremely encouraging results overall. But this is there is this one sore spot about the environment in which uh, he says people seem to lack confidence that markets manage this concern better than government. But he explains that these these polls help to explain why so much of the political left has rallied around climate change as a rhetorical device to push more government regulation and even the forced phase out of entire industries. He says they seem aware that in this area they have the upper hand. By the way, he says it is untrue that government can manage environmental concerns better than the free market. Now, there are some fascinating results that do not look good for those who are seeking to use electoral politics as a weapon for the takeover of health care, higher education and technology. And the same is true for the issue of wealth inequality. In all these areas, majority say the free market is the way to go. 
Now, one takeaway from this poll for those who believe in economic liberty is that we should stop saying that we believe in capitalism and only say that we want freer markets. And he says, I find that to be a superficial conclusion. This isn't a struggle for words. It's about ideas. To change the way we speak is merely to acquiesce to existing confusions rather than seeking to change them. It's also rather cynical to think that only changing a few words here and there is going to make a difference in an intellectual battle. And then he says there's also the matter of the word capitalism, which some people say has a seriously damaged reputation among young people. Well, maybe that's right. I mean, he says you can make arguments all day for getting rid of the term, but he says, for my part, I don't accept them. Realistically, the battle between socialism, properly understood, and capitalism, properly understood, has been the main event for nearly 200 years, and that's not likely to change. Moreover, this battle is only one application of the larger debate that's always been with us and always will be, control versus freedom. So what this poll does reveal is that there are many confusions extant and that the, pro, the proponents of economic liberty have plenty of work to do. But it also reveals that the conditions are right to make a difference. Government right now is historically unpopular, just as the free market is widely respected as the proper way to bring about social change. And ultimately, we have to choose between governments between markets, rather, and government. This is from Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director, rather, for the American Institute for Economic Research. I think he makes a a certain amount of sense here. In fact, I think he makes a lot of sense. If you're listening to the podcast, I will have this linked in the uh, description of uh, what we're covering in today's Loving Liberty show. I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. Follow some of the links in there, especially his uh, debunking about uh, his debunking rather of uh, whether government can manage environmental concerns better than the free market. There's a reason I don't uh, I don't spend a lot of time talking about socialism. My preferred term is collectivism. Because that's a part of socialism. It's the idea that, well, if everything is just centrally planned or if we consolidate enough power in the right hands, everyone and everything else will fall into place. And I'm much more I'm much more concerned with standing for the rights of the individual, every individual, than seeing us all swallowed up in the collective for the sake of some nebulous greater good. Take care of the individual, and I promise you the greater good will follow. Deprive the individual of his or her rights, though, and there is no end to the amount of mischief that can be done in the name of the greater good. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113, if you are listening to the live broadcast. And if you are uh, catching the podcast, well, you can always uh, you can always pretend you called me. I, sorry. I, I wish there was a way we could get in touch uh, easier. I guess I should I should probably uh, should probably have some kind of an outlet for you, some sort of uh, 
instant messaging. Actually, you know what? On the Loving Liberty app, we have exactly that. So if you go to the uh, to Google Play or you go to the Apple iTunes Store, you can you can um, you can find Loving Liberty. Just type it in, load it on your smartphone, and then you can shoot me messages right there on the fly. They'll come directly to me. Now I may be a little bit distracted. After all, this is uh, you know I'm doing a program here. So, <laughs> got to do my thing, but uh, I would love to hear from you. And best of all, did I mention it's free? Because it, it is. So, something you can think about. All right. Are the kids nearby? I'm just, I'm asking because there's a very fascinating article here from Annie Holmquist on who the most sexually satisfied group of people is. And she asks the question, or she, she answers the question, and the most sexually satisfied group of people is. So if you, if you have qualms about uh, young ears, this is not going to be graphic or anything, but uh, I thought this was, this was really interesting, given how much identity politics is playing a role in our world today, and particularly feminism is uh, you know, asserting itself. Annie Holmquist asks the question, women are the happiest when they are in equality-loving, feminist-minded relationships, Right. She says, well, that's the line we're told, but a recent report seems to suggest something different. Contemplating the role religion plays in the satisfaction levels of a marriage, the 2019 World Family Map surveys almost 10,000 men and women from around the world. Now, these couples span the range from secular to highly religious, progressive to traditional. When asked about the sexual satisfaction each of these individuals experience in their relationships, it was found that highly religious couples report the highest levels. The women in these highly religious relationships have a particularly high score. By comparison, couples with mixed religious viewpoints or completely secular ideology reported lower satisfaction levels. But that question gets even more interesting when these three groups are broken into couples with progressive and traditional views of gender. She says progressive couples with mixed religious views report the lowest levels of satisfaction. With progressive secular couples just a little bit ahead of them, leading the pack, however, are the highly religious couples with traditional views of gender. And this is how the authors of the report explain their findings. They say with sexual satisfaction, a different pattern emerged with highly religious traditional women being significantly more likely to be sexually satisfied than women in all other groups, including highly religious progressive women. This reveals that the higher levels of sexual satisfaction identified previously for women in highly religious relationships are consolidated among traditional women and not shared to the same degree by progressive women in highly religious relationships. Huh. Annie Holmquist says, such findings are a bit surprising. Why is it that couples who hold more traditional views of gender, difference between the sexes and so on, are actually the ones who experience greater satisfaction in intimacy? Furthermore, she asks, why is it that women in these same relationships, the ones who are allegedly so oppressed by traditional gender roles, had the highest levels of satisfaction overall. Well, she says C.S. Lewis offered a theory on that nearly eight decades ago. 
bringing up the intimate marriage relationship in a 1943 essay entitled Equality. This is what Lewis said, quote, men have so horribly abused their power over women in the past that to wives of all people, equality is in danger of appearing as an ideal. But Mrs. Naomi Mitchison has laid her finger on the real point. Have as much equality as you please, the more the better in our marriage laws. But at some level, consent to inequality, nay, delight in inequality, is an erotic necessity. Mrs. Mitchison speaks of women so fostered on the defiant idea of equality that the mere sensation of the male embrace rouses an undercurrent of resentment. Marriages are thus shipwrecked. This is the tragic comedy of the modern woman, taught by Freud to consider the act of love the most important thing in life and then inhibited by feminism from that internal surrender which alone can make it a complete emotional success. Merely for the sake of her own erotic pleasure to go no further, some degree of obedience and humility seems to be normally necessary on the woman's part. End quote. Whew. Now, that likely sounds a little bit blunt, maybe even a little crass and unfair to even the most traditionalist of women. Annie Holmquist asks, however, but is it true? And is it what we see at play in this recent study? Are religiously minded traditionalist women the most satisfied in their relationships because they recognize there is a difference between the sexes, a difference they choose to embrace? I don't know. Why don't you bring that up around the water cooler today and then later on discuss it with the HR rep who's <laughs> who's grilling you over. Why were you bringing up something like this at the water cooler? Now, I don't know. Maybe it's better around the dinner table, but that's a very interesting thought. By the way, I will uh, I will have links to the article from Annie, who is the editor of uh, Intellectual Takeout. And uh, if you if you pick up the podcast Right there in the description, there will be a link to this article. I would encourage you to take a look at it from the standpoint of you can link to the entire essay of equality by C.S. Lewis. You can also check out some of the graphs and charts that accompany this that unfortunately I am not able to uh, successfully convey to you over the radio. But I do my best. I'm going to shift gears here. The war on history comes for George Washington. We knew this was going to happen. There's a lot of historical revision going on. And I, I, by that, I mean, there's a lot of revision to the sense that we need to tear down all these symbols of the past. And before I share the article with you, let me set the stage here. We're coming up on our break here in a couple minutes. So I'll take a moment or two here to set the stage. History is what came before us. And to, to ascertain what happened, what really happened, is always going to be tough, simply because you and I weren't there, right? I mean, we, we can look at different accounts, and, you know, the, the really serious historians you'll find will go to multiple accounts, whatever data they can gather that will help them gain a more complete picture. But even then, they may disagree on certain, you know, aspects of what actually took place. But in the case of the founding generation, and particularly, I'm going to use George Washington as an example. We don't have to rely on somebody's interpretation. Well, let me tell you, he thought that she believed he was a fool. What? Somebody had to go through like two or three people's minds to make a statement like that. In other words, there's a a lot of uh, conjecture that, that comes into play. 
But you don't have to do that because individuals like George Washington were very prolific writers. And the letters that they sent to other people, by the way, had a chance to see a letter penned by George Washington with my own eyes this last weekend. Fascinating stuff. The journals they kept. It's, it's not like they it's not like we, we can't get insight into what might they have been thinking. There's a great record there. It's available to us if we just want to avail ourselves of it. But there's also a very determined effort to remove all the symbols, anything that could remind us of these people. Why? Because, well, under today's rules, you know, George Washington was a slave owner, right? Is that how we're supposed to sum up who this man was? For some, the answer is yes. So when we come back, we'll talk about how the war against history or the war on history is now coming for George Washington and what that means for all of us. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. By the way, I do have a phone number here if you'd like to weigh in. 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. Jarrett Stepman, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a wonderful article here. The war on history comes for George Washington. And he says they finally came for George Washington. The perpetual war on history now has the father of our country in its sights. As the San Francisco Board of Education considers removing a mural of Washington from a local school. Now, if the board succeeds in politicizing Washington, whose legacy was once so secured and uniting that his home at Mount Vernon was considered neutral ground during the Civil War, then he says we've clearly crossed the Rubicon of social division. Stepman says critics of the mural point out that in addition to Washington, it also depicts slaves and Native Americans, and one of the Native Americans appears to be dead. They've called the artwork offensive, and the school board says it traumatizes students and glorifies slavery, genocide, colonization, manifest destiny, white supremacy, oppression, etc. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Wow. But the original intent of the mural was actually the exact opposite. So here's the story behind the mural. It was painted in 1936 by artist Victor Arnatov, a man of the left in his own time, who, according to historian Fergus M. Bordowicz, wanted to depict Washington in a less glamorized way by including images of disturbing realities. This is how Bordowicz explained it. Arnatov included those images not to glorify Washington, but rather to provoke a nuanced evaluation of his legacy. The scene with the dead Native American, for instance, calls attention to the price of manifest destiny. Arnatov's murals also portray the slaves with humanity and the several live Indians as vigorous and manly. Those who condemn the murals have misunderstood it, seeing only what they sought to find. They've also got their history seriously wrong. Washington did own slaves, 124 men, women and children, and oversaw many more who belonged to his wife's family. But by his later years, he had evolved into a proto-abolitionist. 
a remarkable ethical journey for the man for a man of his time, place, and class. End quote. So no matter to the modern iconoclast, it's too much to expect one to think about what one is rushing to destroy. You obliterate now and ask questions. Well, never. <laughs> now, this is just the latest trend of attempts to purge American history of its historical figures. Not only is this trend wildly misguided, how destroying statues and paintings bring an end to racism and prejudice is never fully explained, but it also cheapens the debate over America's past by ignoring nuance. From the beginning, it was clear that this movement had far less to do with genuinely criticizing past historical figures, but instead reflected the need of modern radicals to feel good about themselves and think they're doing something to stop oppression, be it real or imaginary. Reflection and thoughtfulness are uncomfortable impediments to those who never dare question whether they are on the right side of history. It makes sense that the same people who seek to deplatform individuals for wrong think on social media and shut down controversial speakers at universities are the same people who want to erase artwork and monuments. The common thread is that for their is for their views to be constantly reinforced and never challenged from without. The unthinking maxims of intersectionality and identity politics must be recited over and over again from all sectors of society. No alternate views can be tolerated. There's the key right there. Such teachings soothe the minds of radicals who can easily ignore the most moral, the moral complications of life from the safe comforts of their college campuses and public buildings. Uh, those, of course, are made possible by the wicked people they seek to extinguish. Doubt, skepticism. And the use of reason are uncomfortable and, and problematic. It didn't take long for the iconoclast to move from Jefferson Davis to Thomas Jefferson, and then from Jefferson to the most revered of our founding fathers, George Washington. What's truly revealing about the empty surface level nature of these efforts is how little cost is involved for those doing the erasing. Criticizing slavery and racism in 2019 can get one tenure public office, and a six-figure salary as a corporate consultant. So brave. It's easy to cover up or take down a painting. Not so easy to sacrifice the immense benefits of living in the prosperous constitutional republic that problematic men like George Washington created. As David Marcus wrote for The Federalist, it was easy to get rid of Kate Smith's God Bless America recording at Yankee Games due to her singing what are now considered offensive songs in the 1930s. But are Yankee fans willing to abolish the Yankees themselves because of their team's historical role in segregation? For that matter, are Harvard University's administrators and professors willing to give up their jobs at an institution founded in part by a man who owned slaves because its origin was problematic? Not likely. It's far more satisfying to take the less costly step of tearing down a painting or statue. And it's much easier to avoid the complicated fact that so many of these supposedly ignorant and prejudiced people built the very institutions they enjoy today. Jarrett Stepman says in their simplistic thinking, surely those who founded a free republic based on consent and truly broke the wheel of tyranny that had been the norm for virtually all of human history couldn't be great if slavery was still a part of their heritage. They failed to live up to their own ideals, so best they be erased. But if you follow that logic forward, he says, we can't stop with the founders. The over half million Americans who lost their lives and countless others who risked them to end slavery 
the original sin of this country, weren't so great, you see. Their skin was generally too fair, their motivations insufficiently pure, and most were undoubtedly homophobes who couldn't have conceived of modern concepts like gay marriage or a man literally becoming a woman. How can men like President William McKinley, who could simply be attacked for other reasons, be celebrated? They can't. They, too, must be obliterated. Greatness, according to the history erasers, belongs truly belongs to the woke scolds who wage hashtag campaigns to raise awareness about offensive art and ensure society conforms to their ever-evolving whims. Wow. I'm just kind of geeked out over the word woke scold. That one goes into my lexicon. Let me write that down real quick. But the truth is, those who wage war on America's history are tacitly acknowledging the benefits of living in America, a free country that allows them to pursue their radical activism, even though it is antithetical to the founding ideals that enable free speech. These movements are forcing politics to infect every corner of our existence, and that weakens this country. It makes us more hateful toward one another and trains us in the un-American notion that to win arguments, we must quash, liquidate, and erase from all memory those we disagree with. So the Washington mural may come down in San Francisco, but the real damage is not being done to the art. It's being done to the legacy of Washington, to ourselves. Look, the past is an easy target for iconoclast bullies. But if Americans don't want them to keep winning, they have to begin standing up and speaking out against them. If not, the destruction of our statues and artwork will be will merely be symbolic of the destruction done to our country at large. This article is from Jarrett Stepman, who is the an editor and commentary writer for the Daily Signal. It's funny, some years ago, I guess it was just about three or four years ago, I, I wrote a column about George Washington, America's indispensable man. And to be fair, I was focusing on his good points. I wasn't trying to pretend that, you know, he walked on water or anything, but definitely was, was focusing on the, the qualities of his character that made it possible for him to do what he did, which was to lead this fledgling nation and a fledgling little army against the greatest military power on earth and somehow to prevail. When everything, if you wrote it out on paper, said there's no way they could do this. The amazing part, though, is as you read Washington's writings, you will find that he gave all credit to what he called divine providence. And, and simply put, that just means he believed that God had a plan. And, and for whatever purpose, that plan included this land being a land of freedom. I know that's kind of a radical idea. What, God has a plan? No. The idea that this is a land of freedom, but I can get behind that. The point that I think a lot of people miss, though, is in spite of the fact that slavery existed, and yes, George Washington was a slave owner, he did not invent the institution of slavery. For the same reason he didn't drive a Volkswagen Beetle to and from work. It's the world he was born into. And as his own writings will attest, he was a proto-abolitionist. He recognized that there was a great wrong that was being done. But look at the character that he brought to the equation. 
without his character, without his leadership, it's doubtful that enough people would have steadfastly remained committed to gaining the independence of the states from Great Britain. I still say he's indispensable, but some people can only see his past sins. I think that's a mistake. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me today. We've got a lot more coming up uh, in the remainder of this hour. And, of course, we've got a full other hour coming up as well. I will provide links to uh, the stories that I'm, I'm sharing with you in uh, the description accompanying each podcast. So it's probably in your interest to uh, to seek out the podcast. And uh, and you can uh, access these podcasts on the Loving Liberty on LovingLiberty.net which is where you can also stream audio. You can uh, uh, you can find your way to get the app for your smartphone. Okay, but enough about that. Let's take a moment here to talk about the solution to social media censorship. And by the way, I, I have to kind of self-edit on this now following my conversation with Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos yesterday. I thought Eric gave a very timely and necessary uh distinction between censorship, which happens at the hands of government versus suppression, which is what is happening on social media, which are privately owned corporations. I know it seems like a nitpicky thing. All right. Here comes. Somebody. Actually, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not trying to neck beard you here. I'm just I think it's it's an important distinction to make. Because on the one hand, when government is, you know, limiting what people can say, that, in fact, is censorship. But what's happening on social media is something kind of different. But the solution to the suppression on social media is quite simple. Attila Solker. No, that's really his name. He's a high school senior. But he's got a great take on this. He says individuals from all corners of the political spectrum have been stirred up by the recent bans of various figures, including Alex Jones and Louis Farrakhan. Now, some have praised these bans for providing good constraints on what they deem fake news or hate speech. Others have attacked these bans for being influenced by nefarious motives that are contra free speech. The debate regarding the extent to which social media sites may regulate speech has been going on for years now, but he says perhaps it's time for a reassessment. One of the biggest fallacies people fail to avoid in these debates is that all social media sites are homogenous goods. The successful entrepreneur understands the importance of differentiation in marketing their product, for it is differentiation that allows the entrepreneur to narrow down his market and attract customers. Just as in any other market, the social media titans, Facebook and Twitter, have developed very differently from each other. And each has developed its own distinctive features. Facebook has developed best for allowing like-minded people to connect with each other, while Twitter has become a bully pulpit for various figures in the political and pop culture world. He says it would be wrong to compare all social media sites as if they were the same. Good point. The various consumer ends each social media site serves to satisfy determines its overall development. 
Many of these different factors will influence these ends. Among these factors is the extent to which speech is regulated. Now, he says, if a given, given social media site aims to assist individuals and, f- and firms in networking with each other, they will likely not have any role in the market of sharing controversial opinions. Conversely, the social media platform that aims at giving a voice to those on the fringes of society will likely have no interest in entering the market of business networking. So if we step back and look at the bigger picture... It's a fallacy to paint all social media sites with a broad brushstroke. Each one of them serves a unique purpose, and this purpose has a huge impact on how the site will develop in the longer run. So perhaps the solution does not lie in calling for state interventions and boldly proclaiming that, free, that social media sites rather uh, are ruthless monopolies trampling on free speech. Perhaps a site like Facebook is not meant for the sharing of controversial opinions or genuinely serious discussions. Perhaps it serves the market of people who want to connect with each other through shared interests and friendly banter. Perhaps the initiation of controversial discussion is irrelevant and disruptive to Facebook's purpose. Perhaps the sentiments of Farrakhan and Jones don't fit in the environment Facebook is trying to create. Now, the market has offered solutions to this already. Where the social media, the networking social media site is lacking, the controversial opinion sharing site will compensate. Gab is a good example of this. The site claims to be a bastion of free free speech and individual liberty, and it has become a platform for many controversial figures who identify with the so-called far right. The differentiation of various sites can, of course, be based on different premises. There could perhaps be the leftist social media site on the one hand and the right-wing social media site on the other. But what should we pursue? Well, here he says, by advocating for repercussions for social media platforms that practice censorship, or more appropriately, suppression, we're merely treating the symptom of a much more fundamental problem, government intervention. Rather, we should be advocating for the splintering of all governmental partnerships with firms such as Facebook, among others. It is these economic interventions that fundamentally stymie voluntary freedom of association and replace it with militant state-enforced censorship. Those who are truly against censorship will let the market gradually filter it out. One has to support the property rights and consequently the free speech of his political enemies in order to uphold that of his. I'm sorry, but that is important enough. I think I need to repeat that. You have to support the property rights and free speech of your political enemies in order to uphold your own. That does make sense, right? I know double standards are still standards, but that's not a desirable standard. Thus, he says, we must advocate for a system in which the state doesn't take sides nor try to fix the consequences of interventionism through further intervention. Just as in the physical realm, individuals on the Internet associate with whom they have shared interests. Market mechanisms have allowed for exercising of this freedom of association. State intervention only blurs the lines. Let the safe space junkies and the rugged individualists go their separate ways. This is from Attila Sulker, high school senior and journalist at 
uh, 71republic.com and lewrockwell.com. Sharp kid. I mean, for a high school senior, that's uh, that's some pretty advanced thinking and writing. And I don't disagree with his point. Let innovation carry the day. But don't expect or don't ask the state to step in and do something to make people do what you want them to do. Respect the free rights of others or the free speech of others, and and then you can expect yours to be respected. Okay, we've got a couple minutes here. Let's make the most of them. To the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Yeah, Brian, Sam calling. Hey, Sam. Um, I'll just say this real quick. The, the, the Basically, the bottom line out of this is what we're leading to, if we're not careful, is a variation of the social credit score system over in China. Yeah. Um, Joe Carey was talking about this on his show the other day. Yeah. Spooky stuff. I was stuff. listening to that, and he was dead on, dead square on. And uh, the... This this happens gradually, and this this is this goes back to what I've stated before regarding Facebook and all these all these uh, censorship uh, situations that are going on with these various groups, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or whatever. This is getting you used to the social credit score system. I mean, we're not quite there yet, but these things don't happen all at once; they happen incrementally. And the next thing, Brian, you'll get to a point where because you speak out on behalf of free markets like I do and against government intervention and all this stuff, why that's some form of hate speech or something because you're speaking against the government. See, that's where it already is in China. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I I, I'm, I share the concern uh, of the, the social credit, you know, in terms of government being involved with that, too. That's That's very spooky. Yeah, I mean, how long will it be when you go to travel or something that you can't, you know, you can't board a plane or you can't? I mean, we already have a no-fly watch list. That's still around, despite Trump being president and all this kind of stuff. Presidents come and go, but these other things never go. And uh, and again, I go back to the issue of um, of uh, Twitter, Facebook. They are they are doing exactly what the deep state wants them to do. They are not private companies in the traditional sense it's just that they're doing it in the and those people behind the scenes that are allowing it to happen who are endorsing it are just not publicly speaking out that they're involved in it but i guarantee you this is exactly where it's going you have a government with a split personality is what you got here you got trump who speaks nice but then you've got um the deep state which is totally the opposite so gotta stop you here because we're, we're out of time sam thanks so much for your right. call God bless. Thank you. We'll be back. Hour two, just around the corner. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. America is built and based on liberties and freedoms. Liberty Health Share brings that to health care.